Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be guided as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, our Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club, which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history, as well as the stories behind the stories featured within their pages. Our guest today is Stephen Aaron. He holds a PhD in history from the University of California, Berkeley, and presently serves as a professor of history at UCLA. In July 2021, he will become president and CEO of the Autry Museum of the American West. He is the author of several books, including How the West Was Lost, The Transformation of Kentucky from Daniel Boone to Henry Clay, and The American West, A Very Short Introduction, as well as co-author of Worlds Together, Worlds Apart, A History of the World from the Beginnings of Humankind to the Present, and co-editor of Trading Cultures, The Worlds of Western Merchants. Our focus for today is his book, American Confluence, The Missouri Frontier from Borderland to Border State. Welcome to our Missouri, Steve. I'm delighted to be here, or at least virtually to be here. <laughs> Thinking about American Confluence, tell me a little bit about the origins of that project. Where did that all come to be? So I had written the first, my first book, uh, which was entitled How the West Was Lost, The Transformation of Kentucky from Daniel Boone to Henry Clay. Uh, which had looked at the transitions in the Ohio Valley, in Kentucky and Ohio in particular, and how um, the frontier had evolved there. And using Daniel Boone and Henry Clay as the pivotal figures to examine that transition uh, across that frontier. And I had thought uh, as one possibility for a follow-up project would be to follow Daniel Boone and his children and grandchildren uh, and to look at their stories uh, and to see how they played out across the 19th century and what they revealed about 19th century American frontier and Western history. And of course, Daniel Boone ends up in Missouri uh, and many of his children and grandchildren end up in Missouri. And so in a sense, I began to focus on Missouri for that reason. It was then approached by um, the editors of a series on the history of trans-Appalachian frontiers. Now they had not actually planned on doing a Missouri volume. They actually said, would you do a volume on Kentucky? And I said, well, uh, I've already written a book about Kentucky. I'm not sure what else I have to say about the Kentucky frontier. Let me, would you, would you be open to me considering and writing a book about Missouri? Uh, and they sort of thought about it for a bit, said, well, we hadn't originally planned to include Missouri because we were confining our uh, state histories to those east of the Mississippi River, but Chronologically, Missouri fits, thematically, Missouri fits, and we'd love to see what you are interested in and might make of the history of Missouri. And so that was at least one origin of how I came to write this book. While I was writing it, though, I also came to realize that bounding histories by state itself introduced uh, significant issues and challenges and problems that we as historians need to grapple with. 
that on the one hand, of course, states are political units that we in the United States um, think of as being uh, fairly central. Uh, but historically, and we can talk about this more, uh, historically, I seem to recognize that using state boundaries and imposing them retrospectively distorted the story, distorted history. Uh, and so I began to reconceive the region that I was writing about, not simply as the region that became the state of Missouri, but rather more broadly in terms of what I saw as the defining geographic features that had shaped the history of the area that I was most interested in. And that's how I came to think about the confluence region, uh, the region where the major rivers on the North American continent, most significant rivers on the North American continent, the Mississippi, uh, joining with the Missouri and the Ohio, those confluences, as well as several others in that area, really was a place where rivers came together, where peoples came together, where empires came together, and where I could explore a history of frontiers and borderlands in a way that I think would, I hope, shed light not only on the history of that area, but also more broadly on the history of North America. Now, as you kind of approach this work and, and thought about it, you know, what scholarship, what historians, what writers are you looking at to kind of think of this analysis of the Missouri frontier? Well, I came of age as a historian when the so-called new Western history was sort of blossoming in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And the new Western history, which had emerged uh, probably the most prominent work being Patricia Nelson Limerick's The Legacy of Conquest, which had upended a lot of the older presumptions, a lot of the presumptions on which a, an older Western history had rested, and a Western history associated with Frederick Jackson Turner and the settlement of successive frontiers as the defining feature of American history, not just American frontier history, um, but also the ways in which it had upended uh, some of the progressive presumptions of an older Western history uh, and had turned it on its head in favor of sort of looking more at the costs and consequences of colonialism, uh, the ways in which the conquest and dispossession of native peoples was um, the origin story upon which uh, American history was built, uh, as much as the story of slavery has also come to be seen that way. Uh, in any case, it seemed to me that was one of the foundations that I was thinking about, looking anew at Western stories and frontier stories. Uh, probably in terms of scholarly works, though, uh, Richard White's The Middle Ground um, was the most foundational and inspirational for me. And White's The Middle Ground, which was written about uh, the region of the Upper Great Lakes uh, in the 17th and 18th century primarily, had really recast the way historians looked at frontiers and the interaction between native peoples and colonial empires and between native peoples and nation states um, and had challenged the older assumptions that it was always empires and nation states that dictated to and dominated native peoples. And instead, uh, the middle ground put forward a more complicated story in which uh, accommodations uh, were necessary for peoples to sort of and empires to uh, to exist, coexist with native peoples in the Americas, uh, and in particularly in the middle of the North American continent. And so White's The Middle Ground certainly was also, I guess, the critical work in getting me as I began to ponder 
the interplay of empires, nations, and Indian polities, uh, and the overlaps between those as they played out in the, in the confluence region or in the American confluence as they came to, to define the, the region. Now, thinking of that phrase, confluence region, thinking of the, of the word confluence, you know, as you're looking at this region of North America here in the middle of what is today the United States, you know, how do you define confluence? What all encompasses that terminology? Right. So on the one hand, one can, I, and I came to see it as something which had um, unfixed boundaries. Um, that is, we know where the heart of the confluence is. That's where the rivers meet. Uh, at the junctions of the Missouri with the Ohio and the junctions with the Missouri with the with the Mississippi, or excuse me, with the Mississippi and the Ohio and the Missouri and the Mississippi, that, those junctions in some sense form the core, the heart of the region that I'm interested in. And looking, you know, it says at both sides of that river, uh, both sides, both banks of the Mississippi, but then sort of rippling out from there with those rivers uh, to take in a broader landscape whose boundaries can't be precisely fixed. And indeed, much of the story I'm telling is how boundaries shift and come to be imposed on a region in which like the rivers that define them, in a region that's defined more by its fluidity than its fixity. That is more by, just as rivers are flowing and you can't sort of, you know, fit them into just one, you know, kind of, they, they're, they're not, sort of easily better, and, and even their flow shifts over time uh, in important ways. So to the region I'm looking at, the boundaries are precisely what's at stake in some ways. Uh, and it's why I also came to think of using the retrospectively imposed boundaries of the state of as the exclusive criteria for the territory with which at which I'm looking in the book is itself historically problematic because those boundaries made no sense from a historical standpoint. There's nothing natural about the boundaries of the state of Missouri. They are politically defined lines on a map. And maps, which at least historically, uh, often were as much a matter of imperial projection, uh, as much a matter of cartographic fantasy as they are of you know, real delimiting of meaningful situations on the ground and the way in which people live at the time. When we think about history and writing history, I think something that was unique and, and really enlightening in what you were bringing forth in the book was the, the discussion early on about writing history forward and trying to tell a story from an origin forward in time rather than taking it from a modern perspective and going backwards. How did you try to do this as the book developed? Right, so that's a really, I mean, it seems to me that's you know, a critical question is one that all historians need to grapple with. On the one hand, I always tell my students that the great advantage we have as historians is we know how things turned out. And by knowing how things turned out, we sort of, it allows us to get things right in a sense, because we know how, where, we're, where the story is going and we just have to lead it there in a sense, uh, because we know where it's going. But while I would say that's our great advantage as historians, knowing how things turned out, it's also our great disadvantage in the sense that knowing how things turned out tends to blind us to the alternative possibilities 
that were in play, to the swirl of confusion that defined how people who actually lived through past times and how we live in our present times try to make sense of the worlds they're living in, having no idea necessarily where things are headed, having no idea um, what the outcomes are going to be. Uh, and it seems to me that our challenge as historians is to restore that sense of confusion and contingency to the ways in which people lived in the past so that we better understand how they sort of, why they did what they did because they didn't know how things were gonna turn out. That's really difficult though. Uh, and as I said, in some ways it challenges one of the fundamental presumptions that we as historians work at, which is that we work backwards. We know where things are today and we work backwards from where they are today to try to understand how they came to be the way they are today. Whereas writing forwards requires, I think, some humility or some recognition that we shouldn't, in a sense, be so judgmental about the people in the past because they, no more than we do today, understand where things are going, where things are heading. We have to try to, in our historical writing and understanding, try to, in some way, create that, that empathy for, for, for people in the past who, as I say, don't know how things are going to turn out, uh, and try to figure out then why they did what they did, or how, how what happened happened with that um, uncertainties, with those contingencies in place. I don't know how successful you know, any of us are at doing that, but I think that's an essential part of the historian's toolkit. I think that raises a really great point. You know, sometimes looking through materials and and encountering someone referencing perhaps a person who's going to do something in the future quite important and making that connection and then all of a sudden realizing, oh my gosh, they don't realize who this person is yet. I think that's something that's so fascinating to think about when we look at, you know, primaries, documents, and things like that uh, to study different time periods and different people. Yeah, so, you know, I'll put it on a, let me put it in a different context that I think probably is, you know, something that we're all grappling with. Now, I'm, I actually have been appointed to a special commission uh, at UCLA. Um, this probably be my last service for UCLA because I'm going to be leaving the university at the end of June uh, to become the president um, and CEO of the Autry Museum of the American West here in Los Angeles, which will be an interesting career flip change in some ways for me too. But one of the last, I guess this last piece of service I'm doing for UCLA is really reviewing names on the UCLA campus, uh, all the names and plaques and monuments uh, and trying to figure out which of any uh, need to be denamed uh, or renamed uh, or what new names, what new spaces could be named to better reflect um, you know, contemporary understandings about how what UCLA is today, University of California of Los Angeles is today. And I think all college campuses, all states are grappling with these questions about naming and about monuments, for example, removing monuments, recontextualizing monuments, rethinking historical plaques. Um, you know, these are, it's in the air today very much. Uh, and I, you know, I'm trying to figure out what principles and, pra and practices should govern uh, those kind of decisions. And as I say, on the one hand, I do think contemporary judgments do matter a great deal. Um, There's the sort of ways in which the values that we espouse today, for example, championing diversity, uh, equality, inclusivity, deserve to be captured in the 
historical markers and the monuments and the names uh, we put on places. At the same time, as I said a moment ago, my sense of writing history forwards, of not judging people in the past by the standards of our day, uh, or not exclusively judging them by the standards of our day, uh, because no one in the past should live up to the standards of the present, since those weren't necessarily their standards. And similarly, we won't live up to the standards of people in the future that we do, I think, in reconsidering whose name stays, whose monument gets toppled, we do need to have a certain degree of humility uh, about how we approach making judgments uh, about the past and about people and, uh, and, and events in the past. So I think that's where that writing history forwards idea, I think, connects not just simply with how we write our histories, but also how we memorialize, how we commemorate our histories. Uh, and indeed, and I realize this is getting us a little off track, Sean, so I hope you don't mind the tangent, but it's something I've been pondering of late. You know, I think that we, we need to um, recognize that oftentimes in these struggles over monuments and names, what's at issue, what I, th I think it's really important to emphasize, what's at, issue, what, what's at stake is not history. History is not being erased when a name gets changed on a building or a statue gets removed. What's at stake, because history is something I think quite different and history is not being changed. History is not being erased or effaced in those moments. Public memory is perhaps being shaped and reshaped. And that's, you know, look, that's a very, very important thing to sort of grapple with how public memory is constructed and reconstructed. Again, I apologize for that little tangent but I do think it really comes out of this whole idea about what it means to think the right history forwards. Thank you for the clarification and, and, and certainly expounding upon that um, in kind of a very modern day context of what's going on at the present time. Thinking about in, in the book and looking at how we see different phases of, of a nation's history or a community's history, or even looking at col uh, colony history, colonial history, in this confluence region, you had not just simply the United States later establishing a state of Missouri, but you had Great Britain, you had Spain, you had France all in this area. And they had relationships between the nations themselves as well as the people, especially Native Americans in the region. How did you interpret these intercultural relations? Well, first of all, I think you know, it's not just the intercultural, it's the inter-imperial or intercolonial relations that also were so fascinating to me. Um, look, I should say, the other, you know, kind of backdrop to when I was researching and writing American Confluence was I was also simultaneously co-authoring um, a world history textbook, uh, Worlds Together, Worlds Apart uh, is its title. And, you know, in a sense, being, thinking globally, thinking about global history at the same time, maybe sort of also try to reconsider this region's history in a global context, where it was not simply an area that became one state of what became 50 states in the United States, but it was also an area that was actually perhaps most fascinating because the confluence of rivers had also created a confluence and overlap of empires and peoples. Uh, that is not unique, necessarily, but is particularly um, uh, influential in this area, that the flow of rivers also brought empires together. So it is a place where we can see the ways in which 
French, Spanish, English, wait, British, French, Spanish, British, and then the United States uh, regimes overlapped with one another, interacted with one another, and intersected and interacted with different Indian peoples in the region. And it gave us a sort of concrete geographic region in which we could follow that interplay. And that, it seemed to me, made the story of the Confluence region significant, not simply for what it told us about the middle of North America, but for the ways in which was, it is more broadly revealing about uh, the play of colonialism on a global uh, stage. And so that too fascinated me as I sort of came to research, read, and then write about um, the state of Missouri as part of this confluence region. Something that's so fascinating to think about even just before the Louisiana Purchase is to think that there was you know, land in what is today Missouri or the western half of the Mississippi River that was under Spanish control, had French influence and cultural traditions, was peopled by Native Americans in and around the same area, and the other side of the river was under British control and still distant farther to the east was the United States. But once the United States lays claim to both sides of the Mississippi River, how did this affect these relationships? How did that affect the people and the land? So one of the, first, I guess, just to sort of take issue with one little word that you used in the first part of your um, question, which is a really important question, by the way. You spoke about British control or Spanish control. There's no question that British imperial authorities, that Spanish colonial officials like to believe in the fiction of their empire's control over the vast domain that they claimed in North America and that their, the maps that they drew assigned to one or another monarch. The fact is though on the ground at the time of the Louisiana Purchase and certainly in the earlier decades, um, that this was, as I mentioned in my response to an earlier question, these maps were imperial fictions, uh, that the situation on the ground contradicted any pretense of Spanish control or French control earlier or British control. Yes, I think, especially in the area in the conflict region, there were significant colonial outposts, colonial settlements and colonial military installations that were dots, that were islands in a vast ocean that remained Indian country uh, through Indian countries uh, into the even early first part of the 19th century in, 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 in significant swaths of North America. Um, and so I think we need to be very careful when we take the maps that we most typically give, even in, you know, I could say, open up any US history textbook at almost any grade level, or college level, and they will display a map that divides North America, or for that matter, you can look at it as a later maps in which Africa, for example, gets um, uh, divvied up among different European empires. But for our purposes, you know, you can find a map that will look and show, you know, uh, North America in 1800 on the eve of the Louisiana Purchase, for example, and you know, you'll see a large swath of territory labeled New Spain. And you'll see a large swath of territory, British America, and then a piece east of the Mississippi as the United States. Or before that, you would have a, a French domain, again, occupying a vast 
uh, range of territory. Uh, erased from those maps, of course, are Indian presences uh, or the power of Indian polities, or to the extent that they're in there, they're often in there just as um, little dots on the land. You know, oh, here's, you know, Lakota territory, or here's Osage, here's an Osage village here. When in fact, those maps, it seems to me, uh, invert the reality of what the geography on the ground really looked like, the geopolitics on the ground, which was most of these territories were controlled by Indians in the middle of the continent with little dots signifying uh, where a European outpost like St. Louis or Saint Genevieve uh, had been established. Uh, and I think, as I say, the maps we use fundamentally distort history. And in fact, I think there's my, the, probably the best concrete example of how the danger of writing history backwards. Because oftentimes to make our maps make sense to students, we'll draw the boundaries of states onto them, even though those states don't yet exist yet. But we'll sort of show the boundaries of the state of Missouri within that area that is now Spanish, was Spanish territory or was before that French territory, or then becomes the Louisiana Purchase as part of the United States. Um, and in retrospectively imposing boundaries, we presume or pretend we give those boundaries, well, to borrow another phrase from 19th century American history, we treat those boundaries as if they are manifestly destined, as if they're inevitably plotted to turn out the way they do. And that, it seems to me, again, completely misinforms about what was really going on at the time. And that is, as I say, we should completely reverse our maps and not have vast swath of territory labeled Spanish America, but rather have it labeled Indian Americas with different Indian blotches covering most of the map, and then just little dots to signify where Spain or France had established its trading posts or uh, farming, small farming settlements or military small forts in this vast region. So that's to go back to the beginning part of your question. I would say for the other part though, that the control, and here we begin to can talk about control, that the control that the United States begins over time to establish, not at the moment of the Louisiana Purchase. Yes, the Louisiana Purchase creates the formal transfer from France, in this case, having it having acquired it back from Spain, from France back to the United States. Now the United States in control of both sides of the Mississippi River is at least geographically mapping itself um, as having doubled in size. But again, let's be careful not to exaggerate the immediate impact of that transformation, uh, that the maps don't yet make sense. Still, over the next decade or two, Americans, white Americans and their African-American slaves are able to establish demographic facts on the ground uh, that do make a difference. And in, and in some sense, demography becomes destiny uh, in the sense that as American population grows and grows and overwhelms uh, the Indian population, that certainly uh, accounts for the transitions that come. Uh, I would also say that certainly the United States though, gets in a position to do what it does, not simply because it has settlers who are able to go into new territory and plant themselves in vast numbers that overwhelm the native populations, but also because being in control of both sides, the United States is able to shut other imperial claimants, other European imperial claimants off from the region. And that in a sense cuts 
Indians in the region from a vital supply conduit on which they had depended for trade goods and weapons. Uh, and in a sense, not being able to have as ready access to British goods or to Spanish or French goods also suffocates uh, native polities and native power. They, they're, they're no longer able to play imperial rivals off one another. Uh, they're dependent or they become increasingly dependent on the United States or, and on American traders. And that combined with the demography uh, really spells doom for independent Indian peoples, especially in the heart of the confluence region uh, by the second and third decade of the 19th century. Now, thinking about Missouri statehood, 1821 there, when it, when it becomes one of 24 states within the United States, certainly this is a, an important period, obviously, for the state and its development, but what happens as a result of that? How does this frontier land, how do these various identities disappear in this era leading up from really 1821 to 1861? Yeah, again, um, I think we want to make a distinction between like a political moment, Missouri getting statehood. And there is no question uh, that Missouri getting statehood is a, a transformational political moment, both within the state and obviously for the United States, uh, you know, most famously because of the compromises that are required to bring uh, Missouri into the nation and the ways in which that um, signals uh, the, the move that slavery, which, you know, many had tried to keep off the national stage uh, was going to move back towards its front and center. Uh, and that, you know, and again, become the, 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 the dividing, what, what divides the states. Um, you know, in Missouri statehood certainly is, as I said, crucial to uh, bring that forward. But again, one should distinguish between that moment uh, and the long-term process that it sets in motion or that are set that are in motion. Uh, and instead, again, looking at the longer term, the dispossession of Indian peoples from within what is now the state of Missouri, you know, that takes place over time. Certainly, again, the state becoming Getting, getting statehood is important to that process. For one thing, because the state gaining statehood means that uh, the politics of the state uh, is now in the hands of elected officials, an elected governor, an elected state legislature, where, who are answerable in a sense to the voters of the state, in this case, adult white men, uh, almost entirely, um, and that uh, that that, demo that democracy, that demography and democracy, in a sense, pushes out Indian peoples because those white voters demand that Indians be removed in a way that prior to statehood, there were more checks on that um, demand for Indian removal. For one thing, uh, the territorial governor was appointed uh, from the, by the president and William Clark uh, as the last territorial governor, you know, certainly tried to impede to some extent the uh, onrush of American settlers onto Indian property. That is the onrush of American squatters uh, illegally occupying Indian lands. And Clark does try to thwart that, but Clark, Clark's overwhelming defeat in the first gubernatorial election in, of the state of Missouri, it seems to be signals the transformation to come. That political officials, government officials answerable to the electorate um, are not, 
are no longer going to be in a position to stand up for Indian rights. Uh, and indeed, they are going to uh, be forced or they are going to take on as their mandate doing away with Indian rights and Indian land claims within the state of Missouri. And so in terms of the, you know, kind of the transformation of the Missouri frontier, um, it seems to me statehood is vital, the, is a vital moment as part of a longer term process in the ejection of Indian peoples. And obviously also on a national stage and then a, a more local one in the ways in which enslavement or slavery uh, moves into the center of the calculus uh, on a national level anew. So thinking of this phrase confluence, uh, looking at the earlier uh, period prior to statehood, the kind of meeting of peoples, the meeting of, of cultures, and certainly the, the important point you raised about the outpost of, of colonial empires amidst uh, land uh, of various Native American groups. Does Missouri become a dividing point in the 19th century more so than a meeting place as earlier? Yeah, no, I think, look, um, you know, I think the line I use is that the confluence of rivers really for millennia had facilitated, had abetted, had encouraged the joinings of peoples, that the, the flow of goods and people through the regions that was abetted by the flow of rivers uh, made this area really the greatest mingling and meeting point on the North American continent. And so in a sense, for millennia, its history is, I think, defined by the ways in which rivers facilitate minglings, meetings, intersections uh, between peoples. And then I think in the middle decades of the 19th century, that uh, it's, not that the, it's not that the flow of rivers is reversed or that the, um, that the, the meeting and mingling cease but certainly over the middle decades of the 19th century, the decades after Missouri gained statehood, where one sees the ejection of Indians from the region, and with that ejection, really, I think the closing of a frontier in Missouri, or that Missouri ceases to be a frontier, it comes to have a frontier. That is to say, Missouri itself, largely shorn of its Indian population, ceases to be a frontier, but Missouri has a frontier, meaning there are Indian peoples and polities who live on its borders still uh, in the decades after 1820s. But I think the dominant story then by the 1830s, 40s, and 50s then becomes the ways in which this region becomes not the place where the United, where the North American continent comes together, but where the United States uh, falls apart. Um, that Missouri, of course, calling the issue of slavery into the political, into the political, into, as I say, into the politics front and center. Uh, and although, you know, it ebbs and flows over the decades that follow, uh, it never leaves. And, I, you know, that sort of border state position that Missouri comes to hold uh, between North and South, between the realms of slave labor and free labor, uh, and the ways in which those boundaries, which were in fact, also blurrier on the ground than they were uh, sometimes the way map makers draw them, slave territory versus free territory. Missouri's status between both is a place where enslavement is legally enshrined, but in which there's obviously divided opinions uh, and in which opinions over the future of slavery come to a head uh, coming out of Missouri and into Kansas. It seems to me this becomes then 
a story, and it's the story I try to tell in American Confluence about how this area, the great, the greatest of meeting grounds becomes the dividing ground in North America and in the United States in particular. Now, when we first started talking, you mentioned that you have a new book project you're finishing up. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I'd love to finish the draft of it. And it allowed me to uh, reserve, return to Missouri. Um, as I said, it's about what I call an alternative history of the American frontier. I have to be careful here because I think sometimes people hear the phrase alternative history. Indeed, if you Google the phrase alternative history, it automatically takes you, um, it conflates the meaning of alternative history and alternate history. Alternate history being the kind of twilight zone or what if histories or the most popular, by the way, I think people in Missouri would think or would know, uh, there are two of the, within that genre of alternate history, the most popular by far are uh, stories, histories in which, alter, alternate histories in which the South wins the Civil War or in which the Nazis win the Second World War uh, is the second most popular in that genre. But I am not writing that kind of history. By alternative history, I mean a history that exists sort of alongside the mainstream, uh, but, but, but shows a different and adjacent facet or face of frontier relations. One, in my case, I'm interested in alternative relations in which peoples who had been often at war with one another, how it is that it's at certain moments and places in North American history, how it is that those people overcome their differences uh, and manage to some degree or another to make peace with one another, to get to live alongside one another, to coexist uh, with one another, to uh, live in more degree of concord uh, than conflict, at least for a period, and trying to understand how those moments happen, where they happen, why they happen, and why they fall apart, as well as how we remember or forget or misremember them. And one of the areas and places that I'm particularly fascinated in is the area bisected by Apple Creek, north of Cape Girardeau, Missouri, this area where the Shawnees and the Delawares had received a substantial grant of land from uh, Spanish officials uh, and moved there first in the 17, late 1770s and greater numbers in the 1780s and especially the 1790s, and it established prosperous uh, settlements, villages in that region. Uh, as well as in other parts of, of what is now the state of Missouri. Uh, and how it was then in the last decade of the 19th century and in the first decade of the 19th century, last decade of the 18th, first decade of the 19th century, how it was that when Americans begin to move into that region, rather than this triggering the onset of more bloody wars uh, immediately, in fact, that doesn't happen. And trying to figure out how it is that these people live amicably alongside one another when a decade earlier they had been locked in a death struggle for control over the Ohio Valley. Uh, and that's one of the stories that I tell in the book, how it is that that happens um, and why it falls apart. And part of it, part of the why it falls apart is for the reasons that I just talked about in terms of the flood of Americans, overwhelming numbers, William Clark no longer being able to hold back the tide as territorial governor. Um, and the ways in which, as I say, that leads to the ejection of the Shawnees and the Delawares from the region, but then also how it is that this story gets remembered, or more important, I think, for our purposes, how it gets forgotten. Uh, and the argument I make on that is that uh, the state of Missouri, as far as I know, has yet to, to erect a marker 
in the area around Apple Creek, Missouri, in this area north of Cape Girardeau, that in any way designates the location of any of the six major Shawnee and Delaware villages that were situated around Apple Creek. There's some excavation work, archeological work being done now to locate the exact sites. But in fact, one of the confusions that makes locating those sites difficult is that there was such a mingling of material cultures between American newcomers to the region and Indians in the region, Shawnee and Delaware and American newcomers, uh, that it's often hard to distinguish between what was a American settlement of the kind that Daniel Boone and others make in Missouri in the 1790s in Spanish Louisiana, and what was an Indian settlement in the region. Still, uh, as I say, what's striking to me is not simply the erasure of that history from popular memory, public memory, but the ways in which public memory in the area only consecrates the memory of the Trail of Tears. There is a Trail of Tears State Park uh, in this area, where the, not far from where these uh, Shawnee and Delaware villages were located. Uh, and American settlements were located. And yet the Trail of Tears State Park, of course, um, commemorates the tragic uh, forced migration of Cherokee Indians through the area. It doesn't speak at all about the history of Indians in the area and the surprising alternative amicable history, at least for a period, between Americans and Indians in the area. Uh, so that's a story I'm trying to tell as part of a larger story of the evolution of the American frontier in the 19th century. Thank you very much for joining me today, Steve. It has been a pleasure having the chance to again uh, talk about the state of Missouri. I'm really excited to hear uh, what comes out of your, out of this podcast, other podcasts, but more important, um, the ways in which the bicentennial commemorations that you're now um, engaged in, uh, what comes out of it? As I said, I, I was particularly fascinated by and have written about um, the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial and the ways in which that was memorialized and how it sort of led us to different understandings of Lewis and Clark, sometimes I think to better and deeper understanding, sometimes bordering into what I sometimes call as another genre that I'm interested in my new book, what I call wishtory, uh, which is the history we wish for uh, as opposed to the history that was. Um, and I think sometimes in the case of Lewis and Clark's Bicentennial, we, we sometimes let it lapse into wishtory. Uh, I'll be very curious to see what the Missouri Bicentennial Commemoration leads us to. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri Podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. Thank you.